Mark chapter 14. We're going to read just a small section of this chapter, and then we are going to uh, break it apart a little bit. Mark chapter 14, verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank all of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This section, as many of you, if you've been coming to church for a while, will know, is a very well-known section of Scripture that we would call the Lord's Supper or Communion. And, And if you have grown up in church like me, then... I always look forward to communion for the Lord's Supper, probably for all the wrong reasons. Because, uh, And I know my wife was certainly this case, because she was a PK, she was a pastor's kid. And, uh, and so kids at the end of the service, when I, was a, when I was a kid, would all run forward and just grab whatever was left. And like just run off and shove it in our faces. It was like a post-service snack. It was very exciting. However, if my mom had said to me, hey, Glenn, if you're hungry, just go and grab some dry bread from, from the pantry. Then I was like, what? But in church, oh, this was about as good as it got. You know, as a kid, I remember eight, nine years old, counting all the windows and then looking, okay, it's communion bread soon. And, and that was the highlight for me. And hopefully that isn't the case for you. At the end of this message, this whole message is based on the Lord's Supper communion, and, and I've entitled it The Four Cups, and you'll, you'll understand why in a second, the Lord's communion, the four cups. Basically, at its very uh, foundation, what the Lord's Supper is, what communion is, and I'm just going to call it the Lord's Supper just to keep it easy throughout uh, the sermon, is a powerful picture uh, that God has given us in his scriptures that answers a question. And the question is this, why did Jesus' blood have to be shed? Why did he have to die? Why do we sing about Jesus' death? You know, we don't sing about anybody else's death. It's kind of an odd thing to do. Why do we sing about the blood? If you are a newcomer in church, if you've not been to church before, uh, then you may be going to a service and you'll see this group of Christians enthusiastically, sometimes, enthusiastically singing about the blood. How odd is that? In fact, as a church, we take what we sing very seriously. We want to make sure that the songs that we sing in community actually make sense not only to Christians, but to people who maybe are just exploring the faith, who wouldn't necessarily call them Christians yet. However, you will find blood in some of the songs. Why do we sing about this? Why did Jesus have to die? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to work through this chapter, Mark chapter 14, and we're going to answer that question. That's the question of the day. Why did Jesus have to die? So my first point is this, the breaking of tradition. Jesus had gathered his disciples in the upper room. Judas had gone and had already left and to, do the, uh, to, to kind of get the 30 pieces of silver and, and betray Jesus. So Jesus now left with his core disciples and they share this meal called the Passover together. And then Jesus is going to go to the cross. So they're sharing something called the Passover. 
But Jesus does something that is the most shocking and astounding thing, arguably, in his whole ministry. Let me say that again. It's commonly thought of, commentaries will say, this is the most shocking and astounding thing that Jesus does in three years. Not raising people from the dead, not healing people, none of that. The most shocking and astounding thing that the disciples would have heard and seen Jesus do was right now. This one statement that he makes. As they were eating, he took bread, he blessed it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Are you kidding me? What did Jesus just do? Now you're going, I, you know, unless you've studied this, you're going, I don't see any problem here. You know, I, I've been to church a long time. I've even been to some kind of Anglican church or Catholic church. This is, this is what they do. What's the big deal? But what Jesus actually did in one statement, he declared the breaking of a thousand-year tradition that would have, Jesus' actions and words here would have been clear unadulterated heresy. This would have caused the leaders of the day to literally rip their clothes out and just scream and yell, what have you just done? Now, I just sat, Jameson and I had a little conversation before the service because I've been really struggling all week to think of something in our culture that we could relate to that would have the same impact. A cultural tradition or custom that if we were to change it, there would be a revolt. And I really struggle to think of anything. Seems to me that our culture gets very, very passionate and annoyed about things that really, at the end of the day, don't seem to matter. Because they've already taken Easter and changed that, taken Christmas and changed that. So I was really struggling. What would it be that we would actually, as a community, not just Christians, but as a society, would be horrified about? Because you need to understand, the Passover, the the time that Jesus is eating this, this meal in, the whole city was gathered in recognition for this. There was businesses, there was families, there was people who traveled, millions of people who traveled hundreds of miles to come to Jerusalem to celebrate this tradition. And Jesus, in one statement, completely destroys this tradition. It was a life-changing statement. Let's look at it again. Verse 22, he took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to him and said, take, this is my body. Oh, my TV's normally there. Take it, this is my body. This is my body. To really understand what it was that Jesus had just said, we need to break apart what the Passover is. Not just its history, but also the different elements. So number two, the Passover's roots. The Passover celebrated or remembered would be a better word, a vital time in in Israel's history. This time where they were in tremendous opposition and oppression in Egypt. And you know the story. If you've seen, even if you've not read the story, you might have heard of Joseph. uh, Sorry, wrong, wrong story. Not Joseph in technically Dreamcoat. What's the other one? Prince of Egypt. The, The film, The Prince of Egypt. So this, 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 the, the Israelites as a nation had grown 
after Joseph, they had grown to the point where Egypt was overrun, as far as they were concerned, with Israelites. They were getting very strong and very powerful, and they were under huge oppressions to keep them down. They were slaves. And the Scripture says, if you read it, that they cried out to their God. They cried out to find freedom from this oppression. And God heard their voices and sends Moses. And so the whole story of Moses going into Egypt and and kind of negotiating at the start with Pharaoh and then Pharaoh saying no and then there's plagues and and we're going to come to the plagues in in a little while. And there's plagues and this whole story until eventually they are set free. And this Passover meal was to celebrate and be reminded of God releasing them from slavery in Eden, Egypt. This was the most fundamental, vital thing as far as an Israelite, a Jew is concerned, was to remember the oppression and remember through the Passover. See, God had commanded two things after all this had happened. They they were to remember this Passover every year. That was the first thing God commanded. Now remember, it says God commanding it. The first thing was it had to be remembered every year. And the second thing was it had to be done in the exact same way. This wasn't Moses saying this. It wasn't Joshua saying this. It wasn't Aaron saying this. It was God through Moses saying two things. You remember this Passover every year and you eat of it in the exact same way. And so the family would gather once a year and the leader of the house, the man of the house, would would gather his family around and he would take them through the Passover in a very particular way. It would actually be quite an interesting thing to do as a community group if if you want to do this, is actually have a Passover meal and talk about the different elements that are involved. Every element of the meal represented something very significant to the Jew. So Jesus was the leader, and he was leading his disciples through, and they would have done this since they were born, year after year, in the exact same way, the leader of the house. So they would have sat down, they would have washed themselves, they would have cleaned up, they would have been sat around the table, they would have looked to Jesus, and they would immediately go, okay, here's what's going to happen. Jesus is going to do this, and then he's going to say this, and then we do this. Then he's going to do that, and then he's going to say that, and then we do this. And then it goes through each of the elements. It was what they did year after year in exactly the same way. And then Jesus changes it. He doesn't even give them a warning. He just says, I'm just going to completely ignore that thing that God has commanded you. I'm going to completely ignore. I'm going to do this in a different way. Now, one of the beautiful things that uh, I love about Christmas, and I think Christmas arguably is the one time of year where we do have very strong traditions. And not just traditions as a society, but then individual little family traditions that are revered by the kids. And maybe if you tweak that tradition, they're horrified that, you know, that you, you didn't do this tiny little thing that you thought, well, you're 24. Why, you know... Do we have to wear our pajamas and eat things in the same way and have cookies for Santa? And, and they're like, oh no, this is what we do. We like this. Our big tradition at Christmas, although you're going to say, well, it doesn't sound that big, but trust me, this is fought over, is that Christmas Eve breakfast, we go to the kids, as far as they're concerned, the most expensive restaurant in the city to have Christmas Eve breakfast. And they talk about it from about January onwards, all the way, 
That's one of our big traditions. If I just woke up on Christmas Eve morning and went, I'm going to make breakfast instead this year. What? That pales in significance to what Jesus was doing here. To really understand, we need to understand the different elements. So let's start with the four cups. The four cups. These were the cups that Jesus used. Um, No, they're not. I think that was a movie made of that, right? The Indiana Jones and the uh, Last Crusade. That was the one. And, you know, they wouldn't have even looked like that. Maybe, I don't know, I wasn't there. But those aren't the cups. They're just there to symbolize. I don't know why I'm going into such depth of this in, in case you actually wondered. Is that, are they really the Passover cups? Because I'm pretty sure they look like they're from Ikea. There would have been four cups in the Passover meal. And each of those cups represented a different promise from Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 to 7. And it says this, Say therefore, look at the promises as we go through, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you from an out, with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So there's four promises. Number one, the first cup. The first cup represented to the Jew that God would rescue them. The second cup, that God would free them from their slavery. The third cup, that God would redeem them by his power, not theirs. And the fourth cup, the promise of God was to restore their relationship in the future. This is a future promise. Four cups. And so the leader of the house would have taken the first two cups, the two promises, and he would remind them what the promises were, and then they would all pass around the two cups, and they would drink from it and think and consider what the two promises were, that God would rescue them and that God would free them from their slavery. Then the leader of the house would take the bread and he would break it. So what was it that Jesus did? He completely takes away the two cups. He just completely dismisses them. There's no mention of them. How do we know there's no mention of them? There's no mention of them in the other Gospels. And then later on, when Paul reinforces what is going on here in Corinthians, he doesn't mention the normal uh, Passover root. He just talks about the bread and the wine. So Jesus removes two of the cups. What are the two cups that he's removing? That God would rescue them and God would free them from their slavery. He goes right to the bread. Doesn't he know what he's doing? Like the part, the, just, just picture the disciples. They would have been like, well, where are the cups? What's he doing? Does he not know how this works? He said he was God and he doesn't even know this. Like what? This would have just been mind melting to them. So they were sat there, probably with their mouths open, waiting. What is going to happen next? And what Jesus does is he goes to number four, the bread of affliction and freedom. Now, this is where it would have been handy to have had my headset mic. What Jesus did is he broke the bread of affliction and freedom. And he said, this is my body. This is my body. 
See, this bread that they used was nothing like that wonderful bread that I just broke there. This bread would have been a dry, unleavened bread called the, the matzah. And, and it would have been broken and passed around. And each, piece, each person would take a piece of it. They weren't like um, germ conscious like we are now. So if I had my way, I would have communion done very differently than we do today. I think it would be lovely to have a cup with somebody stirred and you would come and tear a piece of bread off yourself, dip it in and shove it in your garb on the way out and, and it would be good. But no, not in our culture. We don't like that because, well, germs and measles and like dipping. Ooh, like we all know double dipping is not good. Because I remember this beautiful moment when we went to Westside Church in Vancouver on Good Friday. And we were sat there and that's how they do it there. And I was like, this is very cool. I like this. This is, just seems authentic. It's wonderful. It's this beautiful moment. And so we lined up and we were waiting. People were tearing off a piece of bread. So somebody had some bread. They tore it off and then you would dip it in the cup. And then you would take it back, try not to drip. Take it back to your seat and you would eat it. And my wife was in front of me and <laughs> she tears the piece of bread off and drops it in the wine. What do you do now? Like, she had, I don't even remember what you did, love. Did you scoop it out? Like, so that's why we do it. And some of you are cringing just at the thought of the germs right now. So this is why we do what we do. In fact, we do even better than that. We have gluten-free. It's beautiful. And I'm not criticizing it, but I just, there's, a, there's an earthiness kind of manhandling that Jesus did for a reason. He broke the bread. See, what the Jews were declaring is that they were saying as they were passing the bread around, they were remembering the affliction of, in Egypt. And they were declaring and they would say, all who are hungry come. That's what they would say, all who are hungry come. And then they would eat the bread. But Jesus did something incredible. He said, take, this is my body. See, he's saying, this isn't the bread of affliction and freedom anymore. This is my body, broken, ripped apart for you. Literally, it says, take, because I am myself this bread. That's what it literally means. So think about that. If the bread is the bread of affliction and freedom, Jesus is saying, I will take that affliction and I will bring you freedom. See, Jesus is saying the bread no longer represented affliction and freedom. He is the freedom. That he will take the affliction, the breaking of Jesus on the cross, will take that affliction. He will bear our sins and give us the freedom. The disciples would have not had a clue what was going on in that moment because they don't know what is happening in days' time, that Jesus would hang on the cross, that he would have nails in his hands, nails in his feet, a crown of thorns on his head, and he literally would be broken for their affliction, for their oppression, for our sin, our affliction, our oppression, our slavery, broken. That's what Jesus was doing there. For three years, he had preached the coming kingdom of God. You see, and they were expecting a Messiah to come and bring freedom from the affliction of the Romans. 
Jesus said, yeah, there is going to be affliction. There is going to be a breaking, but it's going to be a breaking of his body to bring freedom, not from the Romans, but from the life that people find themselves oppressed by. So I guess this causes us to have two questions when we consider the bread. What is it that we are seeking freedom from is the first question. And the second question is, what is it that we are looking to for that freedom? See, it's a strange thing for us to say in the West, in a day like this, to say, well, we need freedom because you are free. You can go and do whatever you want to a certain extent. But friends, we are enslaved. We're enslaved by things that are far more insidious and I would say far more damaging than the physical oppression that many, many people experience. We actually are enslaved by things that ultimately we think are going to bring us the freedom that we so long for. We get enslaved by the very things that we're reaching for, for freedom itself. What does that look like? Well, it's very simple, anything, and it can look like a myriad of different things in this room. That which you look for, for freedom and peace and hope and certainty, is in itself, unless it's Jesus, enslaving. Let's just choose one, one thing. Let's just choose money. I could choose money, I could choose possessions, I could choose power, I could choose family, I could choose activity, I could choose interests, I could choose any number of different things. Those things that we look to, to in order to gain us freedom and peace and hope and certainty. But we'll just choose money. And as we look to money, thinking that money will give me freedom, the freedom I long for. If I could just have my bank account filled, then all this oppression this feeling of slavery that I have day in, day out will get freed. But the chase of the very thing that you think will bring you freedom will ultimately enslave you. That make sense? And you could choose anything. Anything that consumes us, anything that we look to that ultimately brings us freedom. How does family do that? Well, you look at your child, this beautiful God-given child... And you think, if I could do a good job, if I could just bring them up in a way, if I could see them fulfill their dreams, if I could teach them to thrive, which is a good thing, then I will be fulfilling. I will somehow find peace and joy in that. And you will find peace and joy in that. It's a beautiful thing. But if that becomes all-consuming, then suddenly that child enslaves you. And those of us who have been parents of very small children, especially toddlers, you can say amen to that. Man, there's no freedom. I'm not talking about that physical having to look after that child all the time. I'm actually talking about a heart issue. How do you know? Well, when things go wrong, and they do, then we too get shaken to the point that the very thing that we anchor our life into for hope and peace shakes, then we shake. So Jesus is saying, I have come to bring you ultimate freedom. I will be broken so you can have that freedom. But he misses something else out. And I, and I, and I really struggle to think of the visual of this. Because the other thing that he missed out was the herbs and the fruit. I did consider whether well, to bring one of those canisters from home that we've got lots of herbs. But I didn't think that would be very kind of 
in keeping with, you know, unlike my silver cups, in keeping with the, the Passover tradition. And the fruit would have been this gray fruit. So I considered keeping a piece of fruit for the next three or four months until it actually went gray or moldy. But no, that's not how it worked then either. So forgive me for not having a visual for the fruit and the herbs. But the herbs were bitter herbs. And they would take and eat these herbs as representing and remembering the bitterness of slavery. And they would eat the fruit in remembering the bricks that they were caused to make in Egypt in slavery. So Jesus was saying, my body broken for you replaces and takes away the need for herbs and fruit, the bitterness and the slavery. I will bring you freedom. Freedom from what? The bitterness you feel and the enslavement. Bitterness is a killer. Bitterness is something that is insidious and grows. You don't naturally become less bitter if somebody has hurt you or hurt a loved one. Or if somebody has taken something of yours. Or if something has happened in your life where you feel you have been slighted or uh, some trouble has come as a result. This bitterness grows. And Jesus says, I've come to bring you freedom from that. So when you take this bread later on, that actually represents Jesus' body bringing freedom to you, freedom from bitterness and enslavement. So that those things that God has given us to bring glory to Him, our children, that we might see them thrive in Him and the joy that comes from that. Whatever joy comes from money or children or, or, or position or uh, possessions, whatever joy comes out of those things outside of Jesus' freedom gets amped up to an incredible, beautiful, heavenly, freedom and joy that you can enjoy each of those things because each of those things points to a greater freedom it's like seeing something dimly and then suddenly putting glasses on and seeing something as it's meant to be seen it's like looking at your child and it's beautiful you can see your family it's a wonderful thing and then Jesus' freedom gives you a different lens to look at life through now suddenly you see your children in a different way it's like putting a new life lens on there's a clarity and a beauty that friends you have to fight for on a daily basis But God gives you the ability to do that. You're not gripping that child in the hope that they will work out well by your own hard work. But you can lovingly fight for the beauty of holding them with an open hand. Saying it's God's, your money with an open hand. It's God's, the position God has given you, the the possessions God has given you all with an open hand. Because it's freeing, not enslaving, but freeing. So Jesus frees us from that. What does that feel and look like? That freedom. It means that you can go and run your business or go to your job or be a mom or dad or grandparent or a house owner or houseboat owner or whatever it might look like. Whatever that thing is, it means you can look at it and because it's not controlling you, You can go to work in the morning. It doesn't matter what somebody does to you. 
Because it's all about God. It doesn't matter if that thing is taken away. I mean, it hurts. It's not like we walk around an inch off the ground and life completely oblivious. This doesn't hurt me. It hurts, but quickly that hurt is turned back to, well, it's freedom. That it's hard to offend somebody who is truly free. It's hard to offend somebody who is not bitter. It's hard to put somebody down whose focus is on something so, so far bigger and more beautiful and ultimate than. You remember Paul saying, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? You can throw me in a prison. That's fine. I'll just tell the prison guards about Jesus. Bring it on. You put me out free. That's good too. I'll just tell them about Jesus. Or you want to kill me? Oh, that's fine because then I get to meet Jesus. I mean, what do you do to a person like that? Now, I'm painting a beautiful picture and one that on a daily basis we can actually experience. I've had a quote going around in my mind all week that to preach faith until you have it and then truly you will preach faith. It was Wesley, I believe, that got told that. Preach faith until you have it and then then you will truly preach faith. Friends, I preach freedom until we have it. And then once we have it, we will truly preach freedom. And it only comes when we actually consider what these represent. That this is so much more than just coming in the middle of the song and lining up and taking it and, and eating it and then going on with it. I said, what this actually represents is freedom from the thing that you know is holding you down. So how does he do that? Well, it was all about the main course, the lamb. When I started preparing this, I started dreaming and remembering that my favorite meal, I think, when I was in Britain was a leg of lamb, a lamb roast, like with gravy and mint sauce, and you could get a, uh, you could get a whole, what do they call it? Chunk, I was about to say. Pardon? Shoulder, thank you. Was it, have I already said that? Shoulder of lamb? No. A shoulder of lamb. And it would fall, oh, it was good meat. And this was the center part of the, Passover. Now, by this point, surely the disciples have thought, I don't smell any lamb. He's got this really well hidden because by this point, my mouth is watering, thinking about the main course, the lamb that would have been killed that morning and roasted, and it would have been to perfection, and they would eat this lamb because they were remembering the most important part of the Passover, which was where the final plague. Now, please listen to this because there's an element that maybe you've not considered before. The final plague where God said through Moses that he was going to take the firstborn. That the angel of death was going to descend upon Egypt and the firstborn was going to be taken. Now I want you to notice something very important. You read this in your own time. I want you to notice that God does not discriminate between the Israelites and the Egyptians when it comes to whose son is going to be taken. He doesn't say, I'm just going to come and take the Egyptians' sons. He says, firstborn, Egyptian or Israelite, no difference. They're going to feel this pain. There's going to be a punishment. There's going to be a a descending of death for the sin that has happened in Egypt. Israelite or Egyptians, both guilty. 
equally guilty. The Bible says we are all guilty and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter what good you've done. But hang on, Glenn. The Israelites, I've seen the movie. They're the good guys. They're the moral ones. They're the ones that give their money on a monthly basis. They're the ones that are kind and generous and social justice. And, and, and I, I like every share on Facebook that's got something to do with social justice. I'm a good person. And God, the Bible actually saying whether you're Egyptian or whether you're Israelite, you all fall short of the glory of God because it's not a about what we do. It's about the glory of God falling short of His perfection, all guilty. I don't know if you've ever thought about that when you read this story. Israelites and Egyptians. But God provides a way. In His love and mercy, He makes an exchange with them. He says, I will give you a substitute. You take a spotless lamb, a sinless lamb, if you like. You place its blood around the doorpost and the angel of death will come and pass over you. In other words, the lamb, the blood will will take that punishment for you. It's a substitute for the sin that you are guilty of. Now, you have to do theological gymnastics to not make it that God chose the Israelites over the Egyptians. It says that in Romans 9. That's a whole other sermon that I have actually preached last year about predestination and election. But God, in His wisdom, chose the Israelites and He said, I'm going to give you a way. Well, that doesn't seem very fair. Well, you need to listen to my sermon from a year or so ago. See, God said this. Death and punishment are coming, but if you apply the blood of the Lamb, a a substitute will mean life to you, not death. And an angel passed over them. So no longer they do not have a dead son because a lamb died in his place. Do you know what's amazing? Jesus doesn't mention that either. There's no lamb, just the bread. Not a great meal so far, is it? But actually, it was the most beautiful, incredible meal that Jesus would have ever led with his disciples. Because what he communicated was this, friends, I am the lamb. I am the sacrifice. No sacrifice is going to be needed after Jesus. I am God's great exchange. I am the substitute. My blood will be shed so that you can have freedom and your sins can be forgiven. That's the good news. That you too can be part of this family. In Hebrews 10, in verse 9 to 10, it says this, He does away, Jesus, with the first in order to establish the second. The first being the first covenant, the first law. And by that we will have been sanctified through what? The offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So you do no longer have to do this on a yearly basis. It's been done by Jesus once and for all. The ultimate sacrifice of sacrifices so that we could have freedom. Friends, why would we not? Run to this truth because it gives ultimate freedom. You know, no, Glenn, I'd, I'd, I think I'd rather try and figure out this freedom thing myself. So then we come to the third cup. As I bring this sermon to a landing, after breaking the bread, Jesus goes straight to the third cup. Doesn't mention the fourth. So now we have a cup and the bread. Which is why we have the wine, no, not really, and the bread. The cup and the bread. 
In Mark 14, verse 23, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they drank of it, and he said, this is my blood of the covenant. I am the lamb, is what he described, which is poured out for many. Notice, not for all, for many. Why not for all? Because all will not receive of it. All of it, people will not drink of it. There is no second chance. You're not going to hang around in hell, in Starbucks down there somewhere, waiting for another redemption called universalism. That's not going to happen. You're not going to get a second redemption. It's a first time. Will you take of the cup and receive of the sacrifice from Jesus? Will you eat of the bread that you will partake in it? Jesus' blood was going to redeem them. Remember the third promise, redeem them by his power, not our efforts or work. It's all about him. It's not about you and my efforts. It's not about my good day and bad day. It's not about my generosity or lack thereof. It's not about what I see or what I don't see. It's not about the rules that I set myself or, or anything like that. It's all about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And that's why these people in the New Testament say the following. John chapter 1. Behold, the Lamb of God. This is Jesus' cousin. Are you kidding me? You're the Lamb of God all this time? Imagine how John would have thought, I know my cousins. Like my cousin coming over the hill and then suddenly God tells me, that's him. That's my son. What? Pretty sure I gave him a wedgie. Are you kidding me? That's, that's the Son of God? And he says these words, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Romans 6 verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The free gift. John 3 verse 16, that verse you see at every football game. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. See, I get caught up with the idea of how do I get God to love me more, accept me more, like me more. How do I have that happen in my life? How do I get that freedom? What do I need to do to gain that freedom? And all the time God whispers to me, remember the bread? Remember the cup? My body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So you can have the freedom. I took the affliction. I took the bitterness. I took the slavery away. So you could have freedom. My blood shed for you. His blood shed for me. So my... This is not like firstborn death, if you like doesn't happen in my life but I have eternity with him and I have heaven with him right now then there's the fourth cup he didn't pick up the fourth cup but he does say this in verse 25 see the fourth cup represented the future promise of relationship And what Jesus said is he said, this is my blood shed for many. 
Mark 14, verse 25 says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. See, future promise. There is, in last week, I highly encourage you, friends, just as a little rabbit trail, we again have watched with horror of the terrorist activity in London. And last week I talked about the horror of terrorism and all the dreadful things that are happening in our world. If you scratch your head, you weren't here last week, I highly recommend you listen to last week's message. It gives you an answer for what we can do. But I think about what goes on in the world, and I can think about the future promise. That was the first cup, fourth cup, the future promise. I can think about the future promise. There will be a day when he returns, and he brings perfection to this earth, and there'll be a new earth, and a new heaven, and we will sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we will drink the cup, which he's referring to right here. What a wonderful day that will be. Now, some of you are going, I don't like wine. Oh, you will. You really will. And there won't be any of this. Because really, that's all nonsense. Let's be honest. Sorry, Colleen. I'm not even looking at you. Because you know, it's just a big, yes, I'd like to taste it. And they come and show you the wine. And you go, hmm. And inside you go, I have no clue. Is it red and does it taste like wine? Then I'll have a glass. And then they give you a little bit to taste. And you spit it out. It's all nonsense, isn't it, really? Just bring me a glass of wine. This will be the best wine. Reserved like the marriage in Cana for last. You will sup of the wine of freedom and joy and presence and perfection of Christ living in you for eternity with Jesus sat on the throne and he said, will you join me? And maybe, and I have no scripture for this, but maybe we'll raise our glasses and we'll say, Jesus, here's to you. And maybe together we'll stand, I don't know, I've just watched King Arthur so I'm kind of captivated by the, to the king to the king will you be there will you be there do you have that hope do you have that certainty because Jesus said here my body broken for you my blood shed for you come take eat drink find freedom find peace find rest and sometimes We sit and we fold our metaphorical arms and we go, "Mm, I'm pretty sure I can find freedom elsewhere. And all the time is Jesus going, no. Just come. So we come to the communion. We come to Lord's Supper. And here's what I'd like to do. I'd like us to, and Sarah and the team, come and lead us in worship. We've got two songs. And in the first song, I'd like you to come and, and take the juice and the bread Come and sit. And I want you to think. And Paul says, do this in remembrance of me. I want you to sit and consider the magnitude of the love and the mercy and the sacrifice all shown in this bread and this juice. And the Bible's very clear. You mustn't come and take unless you have submitted your life to Christ where you've actually asked for forgiveness. 
and recognized him as Lord. I'm going to read you a, a poem that somebody that Lyndon shared with me. Uh, sorry, not a poem, a hymn written by Spurgeon. And those of you who've been around a while, Spurgeon's, Spurgeon's a bit of a hero of mine. But here's a hymn that he wrote about communion. And I want you to maybe close your eyes and I'm going to pray straight after this and then we're going to have some worship and you'll come and take the bread and the juice. And I want you to hold on to it. And then we're going to pray together and we're going to take together as a sign of our unity in Christ. So close your eyes and just, I will do my best to read this well. Amidst us, our beloved stands and bids us view his pierced hands, points to his wounded feet and side, Blessed emblems of the crucified. What food luxurious loads the board when at his table sits the Lord. The wine how rich, the bread how sweet when Jesus deigns the guests to meet. If now with eyes defiled and dim we see the signs but not see him, O may his love the scales displace. And bid us see him face to face. Our former transports we recount when with him in the holy mount. These cause our souls to thirst anew. His marred but lovely face to view. Thou glorious bridegroom of our hearts. Thy present smile a heaven imparts. O lift the veil if veil there be. Let every saint thy beauty see.